For scripture reading this morning, I want to read to you from the end of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified here Now, in our listening to your word, in our planning for the future as a church, Lord, we praise you that you will never let us down, that you are good, that you do supply our every need, and I pray that as we look to you in faith, we would have humility to follow the leading of your word, to put into practice the things that we see there. And I pray that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. When we see you face to face, we would be so full of joy because of what you have done in us and through us. And I pray that you'd begin that work again freshly as we look at your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I will remind you, last week I asked you to pray that I would be able to bring one more message before my twin boys are born and we are here. So I am thankful for that. Last week, I began one of two messages that I prayerfully believe will bless our church in a time of change and transition. I have up to this point this year, this past year, been preaching through the gospel of Luke. But now, as we come out of our annual business meeting, and as we prepare for a year full of change and challenges, I wanted to take two weeks to preach messages that I believe, by the grace of God, will unite us and help us in the coming year. Last week, I preached from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that our church needs divine love. Love for God, love for each other. And that we need to be abounding in that. God is the source of our love. That's why we pray for it. I hope that you have also been praying that God would increase our love as a church. We need knowledge and discernment. So that 
we can accurately recognize what we should do in the service of Christ. Paul teaches the church to pray for knowledge and discernment so that they have the wisdom to approve what is excellent in ministry, what's excellent in preaching, what's excellent in singing, what's excellent in prayer services, what's excellent in youth ministry. You need knowledge and discernment for that. Not only do we need knowledge and discernment, so we strive for excellence in the cause of Christ. The purpose of that striving is so that we would be pure and blameless, full of spiritual fruit for the glory of King Jesus. We do all of this in the service of Christ for His glory. And so the final prayer is that God would be made to look good in us as believers and in us as a church. As I preached that, I was very careful to say that I cannot apply those principles specifically to how we ought to fix a budget or even the best types of ministries we should pursue in the coming year. To discern what is excellent in those areas, how we should manage a budget, managing a budget is a spiritual issue. To discern excellence in what we should spend our money on, I believe we must go back to the basic command Jesus gave the church. We are to preach the gospel. We are to make disciples. We are to baptize. And we are to teach believers to observe all that Jesus commanded us. If you are saved and never taught, we have not followed the command of Christ. And as you read the New Testament, you know, I said something last Sunday that the New Testament doesn't even command us which day of the week we are to worship on. You know, Christians changed that very early. In the New Testament, you see that they gather on the Lord's Day, referring to the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But nowhere is that commanded in the New Testament. We have great freedom, and in fact, if you look at Acts, it says they were meeting daily from house to house. The priority of the church was to fellowship together, and they wanted to make sure that they regularly met together weekly, but once a week wasn't enough. They gathered for prayer, they gathered to eat together, they they gathered to study the word together to encourage each other to greater obedience And as you read the New Testament, you understand how the church took Jesus' command and implemented it in some very specific ways. Some of the things we do are exactly the same. We meet on the first day of the week just like they met on the first day of the week. That has not changed in 2,000 years for the church. They prayed and sang together, and we pray and sing together. They supported each other financially to spread the gospel Just like Paul was describing how the Philippian church gave generously and sacrificially so that he could afford to dedicate his energy to preaching and teaching, we also give to support the work of the ministry. And they supported missionaries and mission projects. The difference there is a missionary is serving for a long term, 20, 30, 40 years A missions project has a shorter beginning and ending, and you see both in the New Testament. You see people like Paul and Barnabas serving for decades, and you see an offering for the church in Jerusalem to meet a one-time need. They gave 
with joy, speaking especially about the Philippian church, because their sins had been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. They were so thankful that Paul brought them the good news of Jesus, that they were right with God, that they had that peace, that they wanted to support him in preaching the same message so that other people could have the same peace with God, so that their fellowship and their family could grow. And it's my prayer that this sermon would help us have the same heart, so that we would not give out of fear or out of obligation, but instead that we would have the same joy, That because we've been brought into the family of God the Father, that we would long to see that family grow. And so we would give with joyful hearts because of what God has done for us. By the end of this message, I want to talk a little bit, and I've never been so specific, and I've never done anything exactly like this. I do want to ask you to give to support the ministry of our church, but not in a wrong way. So I want to make sure that I start this out right And to do that, I want to remind you about the theme of love that I began with last week. Because Paul said the first thing that he prayed for was love that would be abundant, that would grow more and more. And I believe that's the foundation for everything we do as a church, including worshiping through giving. And I want to give you a sort of crazy illustration. And I believe that it works, and I believe that it's biblical, but I want to pull a verse from the Song of Solomon. I don't think I have ever quoted the Song of Solomon in a message, but I believe that I can show you how and why this is biblical. Song of Solomon is one of the craziest books of the Bible. I remember the first time I read it, I couldn't believe that it was in the Bible. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. It's a collection of ancient love poems written to celebrate the joy of human love in all of its crazy complexity. As the songs progress from chapter 1 through chapter 8, they move from flirting to anticipating marriage and the joy of marriage to celebrating marriage and the intimacy that is found within it. And at the very end, as it's talked about love and it's talked about longing After they have committed and after they have consummated their marriage, the woman says this amazing thing that I want you to hear. This is found in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6. The woman says, Set me as a seal above your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, and jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of Fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. And I want to pause right there before we finish verse 7. What she's doing is she is desiring that their love would remain faithfully confined in the bonds of marriage. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. You know, in our culture, we set a seal upon our ring finger. This says, I am committed to one woman and she is committed to me. But that is only as valuable as what it's doing in my heart. This woman says, I want your love to be mine and mine alone. 
because love is as strong as death. When you break this, it is deeply destructive. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. If you are unfaithful, it destroys the people in that bond. She says, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is a picture. Fire throughout the Old Testament is a sign of the presence of God. And it's pure and it's powerful and it's awesome. And she's saying what God gives us in this human relationship is powerful and awesome and incredible. It's a source of great joy when you are faithful. She says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. You know what we say very often in our marriage vows today? For better, for worse, in sickness and in health. We recognize that life together is not always going to be easy. And she's saying, this divine love between man and wife, when it's properly contained in marriage, it can weather any of that. You can't drown it. It doesn't matter the kind of flood that you endure if you are faithful. That kind of human love is designed by God to help us understand divine love. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, as he urges, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, this is Ephesians chapter 5. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. That is, the relationship of a man and a woman in a godly marriage is mirroring what Christ has done in choosing his bride, the church. He lays down his life for her. He purifies her. He loves her zealously, faithfully, and jealously, and powerfully. And the love that any husband and wife enjoys, at its best, helps us understand the joy between Christ and his church. In fact, one day the joy between Christ and his church will be higher and richer than any marriage. No one in heaven is going to be disappointed that they were unmarried on earth because the joy of heaven will be deeper and fuller. Human love helps us understand what God is doing in the church. I'm going to talk about giving in a second. And I want to talk about love first Because that relationship between a man and a woman can help us understand a right way to give and it can also help us understand tons of ways that giving can go horribly wrong. Notice the last thing this woman in Song of Solomon says. Go go back with me if you turn there. Chapter 8, second half of verse 7, she says this. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house he would be utterly despised. In other words, the Song of Solomon talks about love, saying it is this highly prized thing. Obviously, almost everyone universally wants to experience that kind of love. But you cannot buy it. That's a disgusting thing if a man says, I will give everything if you will love me. A woman would hate that. In first service, I said 
to, to make one ridiculous pop reference, I said, there's a Motown song. It's Can't Buy Me Love. It's the most feedback I've ever had from a message because I had tons of people come up to me and say, that was not a Motown song, that was the Beatles. And they're right, it was the Beatles. If I'm going to make a mistake in a sermon, I would much rather it be about the Beatles than about the Word of God. So I think we're okay. We also are disgusted by the idea of people paying each other what real love ought to be because it's not something you can purchase with money. Money makes it dirty and disgusting. Money turns it into prostitution. But sometimes we treat God like that. When we say, Lord... I need this in my life, and I'd be willing to give you anything to get it, and so I'm going to make this gift, and you please do this for me. We come to God with our money, not because of his love for us, not because of what he did for us in sending his son to die in our place so that we could be right with him, not because he's forgiven our sins, but because we want something else. The book of James condemns that kind of praying and giving And he calls it spiritual adultery because you're not loving God as God, you're longing for something else. And maybe it's a good thing. Maybe you would long for health and growth in a church and just say, God, I I just want this church to be a great place. But you're missing the fact that we ought to be right with God first, that our love for God has to be the most foundational thing that we have as a church. And if we're not right, nothing else matters. And so I want to start with this human love and God's jealousy for us and for our hearts. I'm going to give you four ways. I mentioned one already. I'm going to give you four ways that we can mess this up. Because I want to make sure that I don't do this wrongly before I seek to do it in what I believe is a biblical and a godly way. So think with me about a young couple. They're happily married. Maybe they've been married for like six months, okay? Mid-twenties. They're all starry-eyed. Now imagine this young man fell in love with this young woman. He thinks she's the most beautiful, gorgeous person in the whole world. And his greatest desire for her is to show all of his friends that he has a beautiful wife. So he, he makes sure that they go out, that they do things socially so that he can show her to everyone. And he's so proud of how she looks. Do you think that that wife would be pleased the longer that went on? She began to recognize this isn't about her. This is about him wanting to prove his value and worth by showing everyone else what he's got. That's not love. We call that a trophy wife, right? And especially with with a trophy wife, you value looks over substance. That's deeply insulting to any woman. And a young man in that context would make commitments so that he could possess her. That's deeply insulting to the woman. That means everything that he'd done for her was insincere and selfish. He'd only done that for himself. Well, brothers and sisters, there's a way that we can do church that's just like that. Where we desire to have a ton of people and great facilities, not for the glory of God. That's what Paul prays at the end of his prayer in Philippians. But just so that we can be proud 
of being part of something big. Being part of something that looks good. But honestly, maybe the substance isn't even there. We should never give to become part of a trophy church. People can build organizations that look good without genuinely knowing God. It happens all the time. And I believe some churches have left their first love and they can grow in size, but they will lack depth. And I don't want that to be us. Our first love has got to be for God Almighty in purity and passion. And when we give, it's not because we're proud and we have ownership of this church and we're building something for ourselves. We are doing it for God. So that's the first way this could go wrong. If you want it to look good on the outside and just be proud of something that looks good, but you leave the affection for God out of it, that's not what I'm talking about. The second way I already mentioned, you imagine that starry-eyed young couple again, and this time the young man comes home and he's got this giant bouquet of roses, and 24 roses, and he's got a little baby's breath and beautiful vase, and she looks at him and goes, oh baby, thank you so much. Oh, wow, this is awesome. And he says to her, oh, baby, I love you too. You know, I noticed that the laundry's kind of piling up. And also, I didn't get a chance to cut the grass this week. If you could cut the grass and do the laundry, I would be so happy with you. You think their marriage is going to last? No. No, because again, he's not loving her. He's brought her this giant bouquet of flowers, but not because he genuinely loves her, but because he's got a list of things that he wants her to do. That's a kind of prostitution. It's like, yeah, maybe they've said vows, but he's just buying her willingness to do things. He's bribing her. That's disgusting. That's not a marriage. And yet at the same time, people wrongly give in order to get things from God. That's not how I want to give, and that's not how I want you to give. Genuine Christian giving starts because God loved us first, and he has already made the sacrifice so that we could be in this relationship. And when we give, we give out of thankfulness for what he has done first. So when you give, don't expect that you're going to bribe God or trick God into giving you anything. If you do, you are treating him horribly. The third way that we can maybe mess this up that I'd like to warn against, in some ways is the exact opposite. With, with this kind of dysfunctional prostitution, the man is kind of in control and he's bribing and controlling and manipulating his wife. The other way is the exact opposite. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen something like this. Sometimes people do this to be funny, and I, I don't think it really is that funny. But I remember one wedding that I was at that, you know, you know how they do the little garter thing, and they take the garter, and then they shoot it, and, and somebody catches it, and they're supposed to be the next person married. Like that, whatever, that, that's kind of a goofy, fun tradition. But the groom at this wedding went down to get the garter, and he pulled out a ball and chain. You know, like those little plastic gag ball and chains. And, and the joke is, all right, now the groom is a slave. He's got to do whatever his wife's, just to keep this woman happy. And we'll say things like, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's sometimes a funny joke, but sometimes it's not funny at all, especially if you've been around a domineering, manipulative woman. 
The reality is sometimes men do things to keep peace when the relationship is broken and dead. So you can imagine the same scenario. Guy comes home, 24 flowers, he's got all the little baby's breath and all his little beautiful. But he doesn't do it because he loves her. He does it because he doesn't want her to yell at him. Well, that's not a marriage either. That's not genuine love either. There's no such thing as a relationship where one person is consistently afraid of the other. But you know how often we do that with God? This happens especially as you read sometimes the Old Testament. You learn a little bit about, you know, man, i got to give 10%. And, and if I give 9%, God's going to be grumpy with me. That's not how Christian giving works. We don't give because we're afraid that God will be angry with us. We give because God has already poured out his love for us. And so in reaction to God's love, we give as an act of worship. Yes, we bring the flowers, but we bring the flowers because we love our heavenly father. You see what I mean? And then the last way that I want to warn of that is also very possible Fast forward a decade, okay? So now these starry-eyed young people are just a little bit older. I say just a little bit because Lauren and I are approaching 10 years real fast. Imagine if it's been nine years since he's brought his wife flowers at all. And their love is no longer that fire that's the very flame of the Lord. It's cold. And it's beginning to flicker and go out in some areas. And the problem in that marriage is that the husband just doesn't value his wife at all. He's not afraid of her. He doesn't love her in any superficial way. He just doesn't love her. And that issue is just one of neglect. And if there are ways that we can give wrongly, to try to get things from God or to try to serve our own interests and ourselves, the way I think a lot of Christians mess this up is they fail to love God through giving, period. Or, you know, they'll they'll realize, man, I got an anniversary coming up, I got to do something. And so they'll give occasionally, but there's no regularity to it. There's a kind of neglect, and I don't want to say this as a burden. I want to say this to point out, if that's how you treat God, the way you love the Lord is through worship. One of the ways that you worship is through giving, and if you don't give, there's something a little bit broken somewhere. It's not about a dollar amount. It's not even about a percentage amount. It's about a heart issue. Do you love the Lord so that you want to give generously? All of us can and have treated God like this at different times. And it shows up in our giving and in other areas. You know, we we could be talking about singing, where, where some of us don't have a heart to sing. And when that happens, that's a sign that there's something kind of broken. It's kind of off. And maybe you are self-conscious about your voice and you have a hard time singing, and, and, and I get that. But if you don't have a desire to praise the Lord, something's broken. Something's off. And my desire as your pastor is that you would see Jesus for all of his amazing love, that you would hope in the future of his return and when he comes back, and that your heart would be a heart 
to worship passionately in singing and in giving and in listening. And that we as God's people would be so full of love that we would have generous hearts. See, giving ought to be a very practical part of heartfelt worship. That's why God says things like, God loves a cheerful giver. The cheerfulness really matters. And it only happens when you understand what God has done first for you. So I don't want this to be a guilt trip. I want this to be an invitation to joy. I want this to be an invitation to understanding what God has done for us and why we give at all. Scripture says that we love because God first loved us. God did not spare his own son, and he continues to give us every good thing. And when we respond to God's love by loving him in return, we will long to be part of his work. That's why Jesus in in the Gospel of Matthew said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The grace of God is so good, it's so joyful, that nothing else has a hold on you. You give up things for the joy of obtaining that treasure and spreading that wealth with other people. There's an urgency there. There's a desire there. There's joy there. So we give... Because we are part of God's growing family, both here and around the world. And I like to think of it somewhat like a Thanksgiving meal when we gather together to worship. It's a feast of what God has already done. And as we come to the feast, everyone brings something. You know, you might bring pie. I would encourage you to bring pie. I love pie. Somebody else is going to bring sweet potatoes and somebody else is going to bring a turkey. Some families do turkey and ham. That's just crazy. There's a joy in the feast, and everyone brings something. And as people come, you know, one of the most joyful things about a family is is when it grows. When when people get married. And you bring new people that didn't used to come to the feast to the feast. And they bring things that you've never tasted before. You know, how many ways are there to make sweet potatoes, right? Like, you can have them with the little crunchy marshmallows on top. You can have them with pecans on top. You can have them in ways that, that I've never even thought of. So as the feast grows, people bring things that you didn't experience. That's what Christian worship is like. As the family of God grows, people bring things that you didn't even think of. And we all worship together because God has started the feast. So that's my my long, drawn-out illustration of how things can go horribly wrong and how my prayer is that they would go right. I want to invite you to the feast. Now I want to show you two things. A biblical foundation for giving, why God makes giving part of worship. And number two, some biblical plans for how to give. So the first is foundation. The second is, all right, how do we do it? And number one, I want to point you to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. If you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read it in just a second. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. Paul says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy 
of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The biblical New Testament reason that the church gives money is because some people in the church are to be dedicated to the ministry of preaching and teaching. And so that we can study, the church pays us so that we don't have to go get a different job. Paul says that the laborer deserves his wages and spiritual work, the ministry of teaching, is a kind of labor that he says is worthy of double honor. You find the Old Testament principle that the Levites and the priests were supported by the offerings that people gave in worship, and the New Testament principle is pastors are supported by the gifts of the people. So there's the biblical reason that we do this. The reason that's valuable is the New Testament shows again and again that preaching and teaching helps Christians be ready to see Jesus. Paul also tells Timothy, he says, keep a close watch on your teaching and your conduct, for by doing so you will save yourself and your hearers. Christian teaching makes an eternal difference in your life, and that's why it's valuable. It helps you be ready to meet Jesus face to face. That's not the only reason Christians give, though. Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather... Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We would call this a kind of benevolence ministry. He's saying that as you come to Christ, someone, excuse me, someone who used to be dishonest becomes an honest person. They repent of stealing and they put on hard work. Not so that they become an upstanding citizen, proud of the things they've accomplished and built. No, the biblical reason for hard work is so that you can be generous with those who don't have enough. Your passion should be to exercise the same type of mercy that God gave you. Part of what churches do is we exercise mercy with people who don't have enough. That's why we have benevolence ministries. So those are two biblical reasons forgiving so that the work of the ministry can go forward. And I say this, this is not news to us as a church. Our church has a long history of supporting benevolence in in particular. And I believe in our entire 180-year history, we have always had a full-time pastor. At different times, we've also had associate ministers. We had Ken Cairns for a few years. And in doing that, what that does is it allows more people to be dedicated to equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what full-time ministers do. We don't do the ministry. We help the whole church do the ministry together. Our church has had a passion for youth ministry in particular. Many of you will remember the fuel days when we had a community outreach program that brought in a few hundred kids. And that came from a heart to bring people that were not part of the church into the church. And I believe that same heart still exists. When I came here, the youth group was kind of on pause. There had been a couple of different restarts, but when I came... A couple people came to me and said, Pastor, we don't have anybody that's going to do this, and I want my grandkids in youth group. 
what are we going to do? And so we got together a couple of volunteers, and we, and we started it, and it started really small. That at that time, it was a great week if we had eight kids. But from that, it's now grown to where we have about 18 kids every single week. And, and compared to where we've been in the past, that's still small. But you know what's incredible? Is that we share the gospel of Jesus almost every single week. And most of those kids do not know the Lord. They are from homes, some of them are from very troubled homes. And they're hearing about what Jesus did for them. One of the things that our youth group is doing this year is they're going through the book of Romans. That's crazy. They will not get truth like that anywhere else. And the choices that we've made as a church and how we spend our money is helping make that possible. It's helping us do it well. It's not the only way that we could get that job done, but it helps. We also want to pursue excellence in this service. That's part of why we want to combine services. We've got more people to serve in a variety of ways so that we can grow, so that the family here can grow. And I believe that we will be doing better together as we begin this. But we pursue excellence in music by being dedicated to it, by planning for it, by practicing. All of those things happen as we're able to devote time to it. And the motivation for doing this, the scripture is real clear that there is a blessing for those who give. Some of you could not serve in the youth group. Either you have a different time commitment or, or you just have a different set of gifts. You know, thank God, all of us have different gifts. So if youth ministry is not for you, you can work somewhere else. But you know how you can participate is you can give generously to make it possible for us to invest financially in youth groups so we can do goofy things and spend money on ways that help us reach kids for Jesus Christ. The reason that we ought to do that is Jesus teaches that there is future reward when we invest in heaven. This is Luke 12, 33. It's a passage you've heard a couple of months ago when we went through Luke 12. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, houses break. It's one of the most frustrating things about owning a home. So when it breaks, you've got to fix it. And if you don't fix it, it doesn't take long before it just falls apart. But Jesus says when you invest in heaven, it will never fall apart. He longs for you to give generously so that your joy will increase. Now this is really different than a man giving his wife flowers so she'll go do the laundry. This is not the same. What this is, is because you love God... You give in a way that increases the joy of heaven. One day, as you see the Lord face to face and meet people that, that you've never met here on earth, you'll hear stories of how your gifts for people like the Finkels in Africa change the lives of people that you have never met, and you will be full of joy when you faithfully gave to those things. Jesus teaches there is future reward when you give and give generously. 
Paul says the same thing. This is 2 Corinthians 9.6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. No pledge drives in the church. Okay, We're not twisting arms. No compulsion. But God loves a cheerful giver. So this is a biblical foundation for giving. It allows people to dedicate themselves to full-time ministry. It allows us to strive for excellence in ministry. And the motivation is it increases your joy in the family of God as you give sacrificially and generously. Now let's look at a biblical practice, one way that Paul instructs believers to give with faithfulness. And this is found in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. He's already hinted at it in the passage that we just read because he says that you should decide ahead of time in your heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, cheerfully. Now look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 16. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, notice a couple of things. Number one, it's odd to us, he actually doesn't want to take the collection when he comes. You've all been parts of services where we take a free will offering afterwards. That's not immoral, it's not bad, but it's also not how Paul instructs the church to collect money. Because what that does is it doesn't give people an opportunity to plan and prepare. Think about it for just a second. If if a young man gives his wife flowers whenever he feels like it, what happens if he doesn't have the urge for three years? It's not good, it's not healthy. A good man plans some degree, not in a cold, calculating way, but plans to show his wife love and affection on a regular basis. And so he wants us to show our love in giving on a regular basis. He says, set some aside on a weekly basis. Now, this offering is for a one-time mission thing. They are taking a collection to alleviate a famine in Jerusalem. But the same principle applies Set aside money regularly, and also your full-time ministers need to eat regularly, so you will set aside money regularly to pay for their needs in a way that blesses them. Now, the Old Testament established tithing under the law, so you would give one-tenth of your income. And I don't believe that the New Testament teaches that in the same way. There's no set amount. Notice what he says you are to put something aside. And this is not a command, but instead he says it's for your good. If you're able to do this, it will be a blessing for you if you can. Set something aside. But you know what happens as as New Testament believers, as we receive the Spirit of God and God changes us from the inside out, it moves us to a place where we long to be more and more generous. So what happens for many Christians is the longer you know the Lord, the more you desire to give, and you surpass what the Old Testament law commanded you to do by obligation and compulsion. Because your heart has changed, so you long to give more. 
When Lauren and I were first married, we did give roughly 10% of our income as Christians. We weren't in ministry. I worked for Starbucks. She worked for a bookstore. We didn't give much, but we gave about 10% of what we earned. Since that time, we've done a number of different things to increase our giving. And I'm not going to tell you how much we give. That wouldn't be appropriate. But I do want you to know it was helpful for us to have a starting place to say, what should we do? And to be in a practice of regularly, as we were paid, to consistently and faithfully give. And since that time, we have increased our giving because we desire to see the things that the church does move forward. We don't want to have to cancel things. We want to increase things. And so we give sacrificially beyond what someone could demand of us, not because we have to, but because we want to see the ministry of the church move forward. So what this passage teaches us, I believe, is you need to decide ahead of time how much you give, and you ought to do it regularly for the sake of the ministry. Now I want to say just a word, partly I'm preaching this message as a result of the business meeting we had at the beginning of October, because we are in a church, we agreed to be spending as a deficit which means we are using some reserves. Our church has zero debt. We are not in debt. When I first came on, we actually had a large amount set aside. In fact, some people would disagree, but I would say we had more than we needed in reserves. And in order to grow our ministries, we said, let's spend some of our reserves so that we can do things a little better in a few different areas. Youth ministry was one of those areas. We have spent down our reserve, but we have not seen the church grow in the way that we would like. Now, I think there are ways that our church has grown. I have seen believers step up in serving in ministry, and I've seen believers grow in maturity. I've seen people grow in their affection for the scriptures, and I believe that God is doing an incredible work here. But we also are still spending in a deficit. And so I don't want to come to you and say, you know, we better increase our giving. That's not the point because that would be compulsion and fear and obligation. That is the last thing I want to do as your pastor. That's why I took like 10 minutes at the beginning of this message to set out all kinds of wrong ways to do this. Here's what I want to do instead. I want to say that if you love the ministries that we have begun and if God has prospered you, Would you consider going home, don't make the decision in this service, but go home, talk to your spouse if you're married, talk to a friend here in the church if you're not, talk to the Lord most of all, and see if God would have you give beyond what you have been giving. The financial people tell me that we have been using our deficit to cover about $3,600 per month. That's a little less than $1,000 per week. That sounds like an enormous amount of money. And it is. But if we had 70 people commit to giving $15 a week beyond their current giving, our deficit would be gone. $15 a week for some of you is completely manageable. For some of you, it's absolutely impossible. And so... 
I hesitate to even say something like that because I don't want anybody to leave here crushed with a burden they can't bear. The only reason I said that was because I believe that this is doable for us as a church with the people we currently have. Long term, my hope is that we would not need to continue to give that rate for those reasons. Maybe you'll increase your giving and you'll never back down. I don't know. Lauren and I have increased our giving, and and I don't know what the future holds for us and how we'll use those monies. But for right now, would you consider giving more beyond what you usually give? Some of you may have been giving for wrong reasons. I would invite you to remember the joy of forgiveness. Recognize that we gather together on a regular basis to kindle that fire so that our love for the Lord increases and burns brightly. And part of that is worshiping through giving. So if you would commit to giving regularly and consider giving more, I don't want to know and I don't need to know. And you don't need to tell anyone. But I would like to ask you, would you consider giving a little bit more? Some of you may be able to give even more than the amount that I mentioned. I don't want to set the amount. I want to ask you to seek the Lord and consider giving more so that we can continue to pursue excellence as a church. Now let me end like this. There's a possibility that we will not increase to the amount that, that we need to balance that budget. That's a complete possibility. I don't know what God is going to do in your hearts. I don't know what you are able to give. If that happens, I believe that we will be blessed as a church because we have a faithful shepherd. The future of our church does not depend on this. The future of our church depends on Jesus Christ, and Jesus will build his church. So whatever happens here, do not let your confidence be shaken. We will faithfully serve the Lord together because he has called us together. And until he returns, we will be faithful. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have held nothing back from us. You gave us your son, your your precious, your beloved son, in whom you delight. And you gave him to us while we were yet sinners. Lord, I pray that you would bind us together with the love that you had for us before the world was even made. Unite us so that we serve you with real joy. And I pray that we would do this for the glory of Jesus, not for ourselves. But I ask for your blessing on us and as a church. I pray that you would grow your family here. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.